before reflecting on John 19, I'd like us to, to just uh, think through and use some words that are going to appear. There we go. And what, how are we going to do this? They, they're drawn from some words written by the Iona community in Scotland. And I'm going to, I'm going to put the words up and I invite you to just to, we'll read them. We'll just be, on each screen, there'll just be a pause as we can read them. And then what I suggest we do is I'll read the first kind of sentence, the first block, and then most of the screens have this, he will not be scared. So it's the second block. If all of you, the rest of the congregation, could read that second paragraph, and then I'll read the rest of it. Is that okay? So what we'll do is, is just be able to read the screen. There'll just be a pause, just to read and think about what is being said. I'll read the first bit. If you as a congregation could read that second paragraph that comes up, or the second sentence, it's usually quite short, and then I'll finish off that screen. He will walk a little in front of us towards Jerusalem. If we try to discourage him, he will recognize the devil in our voice and he will tell us as much in no uncertain terms. Then he will go on again in faith towards Jerusalem. He will walk a little in front of us into controversy. He will argue with the intelligent, stop in their tracks the self-assured, touch the scabby, upset bank balances by his outlandish behavior in the sanctuary and weep in public. Then he will go on again in faith towards a garden. He will walk a little in front of us into Gethsemane. He will sweat blood and ask God if there is another way and when God says no. He will take the traitor's kiss, the soldier's spit, the bile and venom from the princes of religion. Then he will go on again in faith towards the cross.
will walk a little in front of us towards Calvary. He will feel the pain of wooden nails. But more than this, he will feel the weight of all the evil, all the malice, all the pettiness, all the sin of the world heaped on his shoulders. He will not throw off that weight, though he could. He will not give back the sin of the world. He will take it away into death into hell so that he can lead us into heaven then he will go on again in faith towards what lies ahead He will walk a little behind us through the graveyard. And he will come up behind us and say our name so that we can say his forever. Jesus in Holy Week. Many of us have read the scriptures and heard the stories and spoken of it and testified to them. But still, they are astonishing, life-shattering and world-changing. I pray, dear Lord, of whom... I speak just now that these words, these thoughts would lead us closer to you, would reassure us even in their challenge. Help us see life framed in and around what you've done. Amen. In many stories, if I was to name a film or to, um, to point you to a show or a famous TV series and ask you, who's the villain? You'd pretty quickly be able to tell me. So in Superman, it's Lex Luthor. I can see I've pitched it a little low here that, that only the younger ones have got, or the middle-aged ones who remember Superman. Um, what about, um, 
I was going to say Batman, but there's so many installments, there could be hundreds of baddies. Uh, do you know what I mean? There's always the villain, the pantomime. Ooh, yes. Who's the villain in the crucifixion story? According to tradition, it's Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem, who had the power to pardon Jesus and didn't. You know, he was there and he's, you know, I have power to do this. And Jesus says, yes, you have. And for whatever reason, of being backed into the corner politically or of being weak-spined, weak-willed, unsure of the crowd, wanting to not cause a ruckus. Every time we, uh, we kind of recite, recite and, and um, we don't do it so often in, in a Baptist church, but I know our Anglican brothers and sisters regularly repeat a thing called the Nicene Creed. Who's heard of that? Yeah, there. Thank you, Pete. Uh, the Baptists, uh, the Anglicans amongst us. No, we don't know that one. It's, uh, I believe in God Almighty the Father, that one. Every time that we recite that or re- reflect on it, uh, the summation, the summary statement, the creed upon which orthodoxy uh, is established, every time we recite that, we name Pilate as the one under whom Jesus was crucified. And he, along with the two Herods, has gone down in history as the mortal enemy of faith. But the scriptures don't allow us to point Pilate into the villain corner just quite as easily. You see, it's all Pilate can do to keep up with Jesus, who keeps turning the tables into the governor's shins until it's difficult to tell just who is kind of the questioner and who is being questioned. Answering Pilate's questions with his own, Jesus transforms their encounter into this kind of deep, mystical debate on the nature of kingship and authority, on truth, until Pilate's kind of like, I don't quite get it. And he doesn't quite know what to do. Three times he goes out to the crowd to tell them that he can find no case against Jesus, and three different times they call, he must die, crucify him. Finally, in that cleft stick, public pressure, and the verdict of his own heart. He hands Jesus over to be crucified, but only in effect after Jesus has pardoned him by assuring him that he acts not under his own authority, but under God's. It's Jesus' way of telling him and us that what's happening, what's unfolding, is the will of God not the will of Pilate, not the will of the crowd, not the will of the world, but the will of God and the will of the Son who in faithful obedience on Good Friday journeys to the cross in front of us to free us from the power of sin and reconcile us to God. Hallelujah. That in that moment he cancels our bond. Paul writes in Colossians, he paid our bail. He pays the ransom. He raised us from the dead by dying himself and made the whole of creation new as he rises again. It's a mysterious, wonderful, profound statement that we can't explain and we still wait for the fulfillment. Jesus was the Son of God. God was his Father. God so loved the world 
that he sent Jesus to die on the cross, but someone had to pay for all the bad things we'd done, and God decided. And a child may say, God did that to his son? You mean to tell me that God killed his own son? Why would he do that? What kind of dad does that? Looking slightly horrified at bedtime stories into the eyes of dad. In his book, uh, Messengers of God, uh, the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel talks about the difference between the Jewish faith and Christian faith by comparing two mountains that rise high in each one. For Judaism, it's the Mount Moriah, Genesis, Abraham binding his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved and laid him on the bed of kindling wood. For Christianity, the mountain is Golgotha, where according to tradition, another father bound another only son to a deadly piece of wood. The difference between the two religions, uh, Wiesel says, is, is that in the Jewish story, the father doesn't kill the son, but in the Christian story, he does. Founding a religion that has gone on to use death as a means of glorifying God through centuries of inquisitions and holy wars. For the Jew, he says, all life, all truth must spring from life, never from death. Interesting point, whether you agree with him or not. It's very difficult to, to sometimes set this idea of God is loving. And how do you reconcile with that a God, a God who wills a child's death for whatever reason? What does that mean? Well, we approach these things carefully and cautiously and very, very reverently. If God would do that to Jesus, whom God loves, what in the world might happen to those of us who've nothing at all to recommend us to our Father. And even if we had, wouldn't that ultimately be bad news for us too? Isn't the deep down message of the cross that if you are really good like Jesus, you'll die? The earliest picture of, uh, surviving picture of the crucifixion comes from a carved ivory tablet somewhere from between 420 and 430 AD. It shows five figures, all short and stocky. Their faces have been rubbed away by, through time. From right to left, they appear to be a Roman soldier, Christ on the cross, John the beloved disciple, Mary the mother of God, and right behind her, his limp hand brushing her elbow, Judas hanging from his tree with the blood money scattered on the ground beneath his feet. He's clearly the villain of the scene, Judas. He's received his just reward, but, but in later crucifixion scenes that are depicted, it's more difficult to see who's at fault. Major players have all gone. For one thing, John is the only disciple in sight, and, and no one from the Jewish or Roman governments is there, just some women and a few soldiers and a few passers-by. In one classic arrangement, Jesus' friends are placed on his right side. His mother is there, the beloved disciple John, along with the converted centurion and the thief on the cross who repented. Enemies placed on the left, the soldiers, the chief priests, the unrepentant thief. But none of them actually killed Jesus. Unless you count the unlucky one whose job it was to hammer in the nails. Who did it? Was it Jesus, Judas who sold privileged information to the chief priests so that they knew just where and when to arrest Jesus? Or was it Annas who turned Jesus over to Caiaphas, the high priest? Or was it Caiaphas who turned Jesus over to Pilate because Jewish law forbade them to put Jesus to death? Or was it the mob who chose to pardon Barabbas instead of Jesus? Or was it Pilate who gave in to public pressure and handed Jesus over 
to be crucified? Or was it the soldiers themselves who carried out the death sentence and then squabbled over Jesus' clothes? Pick one of them. Pick any of them. And we've still not solved the crimes, which is as complicated as any Sherlock Holmes mystery ever written. It's hard to decide who's to blame. We, we want to make the villains clear. We want to point the finger and say, that's her. That's him, the mugshot in the morning paper. Who's to blame? You see, the scriptures go beyond the simplistic, it's their fault. It's them. The scriptures go beyond that and begin to point fingers at the whole of creation as if the real enemy, past, present, and future, is everything in this world that is set against God. Like Judas and the mob and the enemy in us wants to deal with our disappointment by betraying those who've let us down. Like Annas and Caiaphas, the enemy who wants to deal with our fear by condemning those who threaten us. Like Pilate, the enemy in us wants to deal with public pressure by throwing up our hands like the soldiers. And the enemy in us wants to deal with the call to our personal responsibility by saying, I was just doing what I was told. Whose will put Jesus on the cross? Was it God's? Or was it ours? In a sense, of course, it was inevitable that his death was as easy to foresee as that lamb grazing amongst that that, that pack of wolves. Except that it was more conscious than that. It was not that Jesus wasn't incapable of defending himself. He could have stopped his teaching earlier on, or at least watered it down. He could have exercised his privilege as the son of God and called down fire, or he could have faded away into the woodwork, blending in with the crowd like many other Galilean. And the soldiers could have mistook someone else for Jesus. You see, it's not that he couldn't save himself. It's that he wouldn't save himself. Because that's not who he was. If anything, he was put to death for being completely who he was and for refusing to be less than who he was, which so offended the whole of creation, the whole of this world, aged through the time that it conspired to wipe him off the face of the earth. And it did. Remember that story of Abraham and Isaac? One interpretation of that story is the story about Abraham's love of God and what it was based upon. You see, by asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son, God asked him if he was willing to give up what he loved most, if he was willing to give up his son and and being in a ripe old age, the future that he longed for of being surrounded by grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Abraham, are you willing to give up this bright future as a patriarch of a people as numerous as the stars scattered in the sky? See, God asked Abraham in short if he was willing to give up all the benefits of his faith for his singular love of God. However cruel a bargain it may sound to us, stark and shocking, Abraham said, yes, I am willing to do so. And in the end, he didn't have to. A ram appeared, caught in the thorn bush, 
And Abraham sacrificed that in the place of his son. And likewise, in this story, this Easter week story, Jesus was willing to give up all the benefits of his faith, and he didn't have to do so either, but he chose to. For the singular love of God, he had everything, he gave everything he had, giving, refusing to back down on the good news about what love might mean for the world, even if it cost him his life. But if we are to draw the final parallel between the first story and the second one of Abraham and Isaac and the ram and the father, the son, and the cross, let's think about it carefully. Jesus does not equal Abraham the father, nor does he equal Isaac the son. Jesus equals the ram, who in some way far, far beyond our understanding became the sacrifice that all the sons and daughters of Abraham might go free, and so that every participant in the drama on Good Friday, Judas and Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the mob and the soldiers and the chief priests and the scribes, all of them went home free and forgiven too. That's Easter. Who's the villain? Whose will put Jesus on the cross? God knows. But there's a distinct possibility that it was Jesus' own magnificent will by which he offered himself to us and then offers himself to us still a gift, a pardon, a release, a sacrifice, a meal, not to satisfy a cosmic bookkeeper in the sky, but to leave no doubt about his love for us. By upending the cup that was handed to him that he drank deeply from. He made sure that wherever we go in this life and whatever happens to us, we have a companion who has been there before us, who's done ferocious battle with all the powers of darkness that try to separate us from God and from one another and who has won. Who's to blame? Too many times and too many narratives in the world have sought to single out the Jews or the Romans or Judas and wriggle from the spotlight the passage throws. If we're to see any villain, we're to see ourselves. To see all of creation fallen, all of the wretchedness of humanity rejecting God. But the spotlight falls on the Son who willingly, humbly, obediently, lovingly dies for the sin of the world. I pray that in this Easter week that I'd move us again, draw us to him again shape our thinking about the refugee and the asylum seeker, to shape our thinking about Donald Trump and ISIS and our neighbor.
for his death is once for all. Let's pray. Complicit Father in in the characters that we've read about. All of us have been indecisive and, and like Pilate, kind of trying to think it through and let ourselves off the hook and say it's someone else's decision. We all live with agendas, we all live with what we think we know best. When we think of villains, we, we often characterize them as monsters, and, and it doesn't sit easily with us when we think, that's me. But sometimes the, those who've fallen furthest, those who are the most sick, when the hero comes, recognize the depth and breadth of the healing and the enormity of the freedom won through the hero. You are our hero, Jesus. You're our hero. And this week, all glory and silence and awe and shouting of praise the inclination of our hearts and minds, the embodiment of our actions and behavior in the light of you, Jesus. Amen.